Well, it's good to have you all this morning with us on Easter. This is our biggest Sunday of the year. It's always an exciting morning at church. It's been really exciting so far. We had Reveille this morning during the first service, and um, that, that was fun. I was really happy that she didn't bark because I have no idea what I would do if, if she barked. Do, do I dismiss you? Do we just soldier on? That's not a scenario we've ever planned for in staff meetings, so I, I guess we have a meeting this week that we need to, need to talk about that. But we're, we're really excited to have you, especially if you're visiting town, if you're visiting family. It's great to have you with us this morning as we celebrate Easter, truly the, the biggest day of the year for Christians, better than Christmas even. Really excited to have you with us on Easter. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, that's where we're going to start this morning. Now, when I was in high school, I'd mentioned this before, I, I used to rock climb, uh, usually in the gym, occasionally outside, and, and one time, only one time, I went with my friends, who were much better climbers than me, to do a multi-pitch climb. Now, if you don't know what that means, multi-pitch, that means that you're climbing a cliff or a mountain that is taller than the length of your rope. So so each person is going to climb up as far as the rope will allow while their friend belays them, and then you anchor to the mountain, and you've got to then pull up your rope, and and everybody comes up, and you start over from the middle of the mountain. You've got to do it all again. Now, I only ever did it once, and here's why. Because when you're multi-pitch climbing, there is this moment, just a few seconds long, when you're hanging from the side of the mountain, and you have to pull up the rope, and all of your weight hangs from one knot that you just tied. Now, after the first pitch, I was about 100 feet up. It's 10 stories up the side of a mountain. It was all rock below me, and, and I pulled up the rope, and, and, and for just a moment, as, as I hung on this knot I just tied, I had to take my hands off of the wall and reach out and unclip from the anchor, and during that moment, for just a few seconds, all of my weight hung on that one knot I just tied, and, and I realized if that knot fails at 100 feet, I'm approximately 2.5 seconds from meeting God, because there's no safety rope. There, there's nothing to hold me if my knot fails, and, and I only ever did it once because I did not like that feeling. I did not like the direction that my life was headed because I was hanging everything, my entire life, my whole existence on one little knot that I tied, and I was 17 years old. I was a total amateur. I did not know what I was doing. If you are going to hang your entire life on something, you better know that it'll hold you up. You better know that it's trustworthy. You better know that it will bear your weight if you're going to hang everything on that one thing. Well, what you may not realize is that if you're a Christian, you, you actually already have hung your entire life on just one thing. You have hung all of your beliefs, everything you think is true in life, all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your future on just one thing, one spectacular event that the Bible claims happened 2,000 years ago, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible claims that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. Now, no one really has a problem with the lived and died part. Because that's, that's not that amazing to believe, that he lived and that he died. Uh, actually, you would be really hard-pressed to find a non-Christian ancient Near Eastern scholar 
who would not agree with us that a real man named Jesus lived in first century Palestine, that he was called the Christ, and that he was crucified as recorded in the Gospels. No one doubts that, even non-Christian scholars, because there's just so much evidence, not just in the Bible, but in first and second century Jewish and Roman literature, there is so much proof that Jesus really did live and die. No one doubts that. What they doubt is the resurrection. That's what they doubt. It's resurrection. We've never seen that. We've never seen someone die and then rise from the dead. We've never seen anyone who was brutally killed, violently killed, pierced with nails, pierced with a spear, his blood drained from his body, his heart stops, you wrap him up, you put him in a cave for three days, and then he comes forth, not weak, not incapacitated, not in need of medical help, but glorified and perfected and powerful in perfect health. No one has ever seen that. There is no medical explanation for that. There's no natural way to explain that happening so therefore if the resurrection really happened if a man named Jesus really lived and then he died and then three days later he arose in perfect health then that is incontrovertible proof that the God of the Bible really does exist that the Bible is true that God really does intervene in human history that he really has sent his son Jesus to to live to die and to rise from the dead all of Christianity is true if that one event is true. Let me explain it for you with a, with a flow chart because I was an engineer and, and I kind of think that there's nothing that's worth saying in life that can't be said better with a flow chart. So, so here's my flow chart. The question before us is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Did that really happen 2,000 years ago? Is that event real? Is it true? Is it, is it real history? Well, if it is, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's right. It did happen. <laughs> You've kind of got my whole sermon right there. That's right. If it did happen, If the resurrection is real, if this history is true, well, then it's all true. Everything you know to be true from the Bible is reliable. The Bible as a whole is a trustworthy document. The God of the Bible exists. His word is true. You have reason to have joy and peace and purpose in life. If the resurrection really happened, then then everything you believe is is true and real. But on, on the flip side, if the resurrection did not happen, if it's not real, then all of Christianity is just an elaborate fiction, an elaborate story made up to make people feel better. Because the the central truth of the Bible, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, the central truth that everything hangs on, that everything is built on, is that Jesus Christ really rose bodily from the dead 2,000 years ago. If that central truth is not true, then none of the Bible is trustworthy. Think about it like Jenga. You ever play Jenga with those blocks? You stack them up. Well, in in the Jenga game of life, the resurrection of Jesus is the bottom level. If you take that out, the whole tower collapses. Christianity can't stand without the resurrection of Jesus Christ being true. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. We are of all men most to be pitied. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If Jesus did not actually rise from the dead 2,000 years ago, then Christianity is a farce. There's no value in it. Forgiveness of sin, salvation, eternal life, justification, they're all figments of your imagination. They are nothing but empty promises. All of life is nothing but the enjoyment of fleeting pleasures distracting you while you await an eternity of non-existence. That's all life is if Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. That's why John Updike put it this way. Make no mistake, 
If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is that one knot holding us to the side of the mountain of life. If it is true, then then you have purpose in life. You have hope. You have joy. If it is not true, then, then you have no purpose. You have no hope. You have no reason for joy. Everything in your life hangs on the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why it is such great news that God has given us so much evidence for the truthfulness of the resurrection. Not just in the Bible, but in the literature and in the history of the first and second century, God has given us a mountain of evidence to prove to us that the resurrection really happened. This morning, I am incredibly excited to get to share with you the five reasons, the five proofs why I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a man named Jesus really did rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. I've been looking forward to sharing these five proofs with you for months. Reason is because in my life, when things get dark, these are the things that I cling to, these truths. You guys know I mentioned it before. I, I will always struggle with doubt. That's just the nature of my personality. Until I see God face to face, doubt will always be something I wrestle with. And when it gets really bad, when I get overwhelmed by doubt and fear and anxiety, I turn back to the resurrection. I turn back to these five proofs that it really happened because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then the entire Bible is true and I really do have life and peace and joy and purpose no matter how dark my life feels. The truth of the resurrection is the anchor that holds me to the side of the mountain of life when nothing else will. I'm really excited to share these five Lines of evidence, these five proofs. How do we know that the resurrection really did happen 2,000 years ago? Five reasons that I want to give you. First reason why we know that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Number one, because Jesus was not the only Messiah in the first century. Look with me, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 34. Peter and John have been preaching in Jerusalem. Religious leaders don't like it, so they arrest them. And here's what they say. They come together, verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men, that's Peter and John, outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you, purpose, what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him, but he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. It may surprise you to realize Jesus wasn't the only Jewish man in the first century going around claiming to be the Messiah. Actually, a lot of men did it. 
We, we can look. There's a lot of history. A lot of Jewish men claim to be the Messiah because it's really easy to claim that. You, you can say anything you want. And these men would claim it. And, and if they were charismatic teachers, charismatic leaders like these two guys, like Judas and Thaddeus, they would gather a huge number of followers around them who, who began to believe that this really is the Messiah. They would gather these huge followers. They would build this big movement. And then they would die. Because the Romans and the Jews didn't like somebody leading a revolution. And so they put him to death. And as soon as their messiahs died, all of those followers went back home. They always did. They just went back home. They scattered. The movement was over. None of them claimed that their Messiah had risen from the dead. No one even thought to claim that. No one had ever claimed that. They just went home. Why? Why did they just go home? Why didn't they invent this idea that their Messiah rose from the dead? Well, because... In the Jewish mind of the first century, to any Jew living in the first century, if a Messiah died, it was proof that it wasn't the Messiah. Death was proof that the Messiah was a fraud. The Messiah is God's king, God's anointed king who will rule over the whole planet in fulfillment of the Old Testament. It is impossible for God's anointed king to die. Therefore, if this man dies, it is proof he's not who he said he was. Even Jesus' disciples thought that. They didn't think it was possible for the Messiah to die. Peter uh, identifies Jesus in Matthew 16. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are right. And then, as soon as Jesus says that Peter is right, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and be killed and then the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter couldn't conceive of the idea that the Messiah, the king anointed by God, would die. It's impossible. You know, there's a lot of skeptics, critics of the Christian faith, who they imagine that, that what we have in the Bible, in the New Testament, is the disciples inventing this idea of resurrection and, and everybody buying into it, well, because they were really simple people back then. They were pre-modern people. They lived before the scientific age. They were conditioned to see miracles and everything. So some guys claim he rose from the dead and everybody thinks, yeah, I, I guess he did. Well, no, that is a, a really insulting and naive view of first century people. They weren't idiots. They knew that when a body dies, it stays dead. The Gentiles found the idea of resurrection absolutely laughable, could not imagine it, didn't want it. The Jews actually did not believe in this kind of resurrection. Some of the Jews thought that based on a passage in Daniel, maybe at the end of time when God creates a new heavens and the new earth, maybe he will resurrect all people. But no Jew had ever thought of an idea that at some point in history, one guy would be resurrected. There's never an idea that crossed the mind of a Jewish man in the first century. So that's why it's not surprising. When all of these other messiahs died, immediately all of their followers scattered. All of them gave up hope. No one dreamed of the idea that their messiah would rise from the dead because the death of their messiah was proof that he was a fraud. So if that's true, then you have to explain why is it different for this one messiah? Out of all the messiahs in first century Israel, why this one messiah? Why do his followers not go home? Why do they actually grow a bigger movement? Thousands and thousands and millions and billions join them over this incredible claim that no one had ever thought of, this shocking claim that despite being humiliated and crucified, their messiah had risen from the dead, an idea which no one had ever thought of before. 
How do you explain that fact in history? The only reasonable explanation is it really happened. That's why they're telling you that their Messiah rose. That's why they don't go home. Because they really believe they have personally seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's the only reasonable explanation. First line of evidence that leads me to believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus really did rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. Second line of evidence. How do we know that it really happened? Because in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, women are always the first witnesses. Turn with me to the end of the book of Luke. End of the book of Luke, chapter 23 of the book of Luke. It's interesting. It's, it's not incidental that in all four Gospels, the first people to see and witness the resurrected Jesus are always women. That might seem trivial to you. It's not. Look with me, starting in, in chapter 23 of Luke, verse 55. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they, that is the women, came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. That's the same account in all four Gospels. Always women who are the first to see the resurrected Jesus, the primary witnesses of his resurrection. Why does that matter? Well, let, let me explain to you for a moment how the first century viewed women. Even in the nation of Israel, women in Jewish courts were not allowed to testify because the general thought, not in the Bible, but in society, was that women were unreliable witnesses of events. Josephus himself, a Jew writing around 60 AD, a history of the Jewish people, he says that even the testimony of multiple women that all lines up, they're all saying the same thing about the same event, you should reject it because, quote, of the levity and boldness of their sex. Celsus, a second century critic of Christianity, mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene as an alleged witness of the resurrection since, like all women, he said, she was a hysterical female deluded by sorcery. So, so there you go. In society as a whole in the first century, Women were thought of very negatively. Society in, in the first century was incredibly bigoted towards women. Women were believed to be unintelligent and unreliable. Now, the Bible does not share that opinion. The Bible presents women as co-heirs of eternal life with men, our equals in every way, but society as a whole did not agree with that. So, so here's why this matters. Here's why, why this applies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are inventing a religion. So you're, you're inventing a religion to, to make yourself popular so you'll look important so lots of people will follow you. So you're making it all up. You're making this story up. You're inventing it all. Let me ask you, if you were inventing this story about the resurrection, why would you choose as your primary witnesses of the most important event in your entire religion, why would you choose witnesses whom your society assumes are unreliable? It would be like if I was trying to defraud you. 
I was trying to steal your money by getting you to buy into an investment idea. And, and I come to you and say, man, I've got this incredible investment. It's going to make you so much money. I heard about it the other day from my four-year-old. No, that, that's not going to be very convincing to you because in our society, we do not regard four-year-olds as good judges of investment opportunities. Now, if I'm trying to defraud you, then I'm going to tell you that it was an idea I read about in the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to give you a witness that you assume is credible. If the disciples were making it all up, if this was all a cleverly devised fable, then why in the world would they choose witnesses, their primary witnesses, whom their entire society assumed were unreliable. There is absolutely no way to explain it other than it really happened this way. The women really were the first witnesses. That's why all four Gospels put them first. That's the second line of evidence that shows us the resurrection really happened. Jesus really rose from the dead. Third line of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the accounts of the Gospels and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles look incredibly foolish. Let me ask you again, put yourself again in the shoes of someone who is making up a religion. Now you're making up this whole Christianity. You're making up a religion to get people to follow you so you look popular and feel big about yourself. If you are making up a religion, then I assume that in your religion, you're going to make yourself look good, right? So you're making it all up so that people will like you. So, so you're going to make yourself look good. That is what we would assume. You'll make yourself look strong and wise and powerful and important. And yet you read the Gospels and you see the apostles writing about themselves, because they're the ones who wrote it, you see them writing really unflattering things about themselves. The apostles do not come across in a good light in, Christian, in the Christian religion, especially in the Gospels. Let me give you a, a few examples of things that the apostles admit about themselves. We read Matthew 16, that, that Peter rebuked Jesus. Well, right after Peter rebuked Jesus, here's what Jesus says to him. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If I am making up a religion and I want myself to look good, I'm not going to include this part. I'm going to leave that out because really I, I don't want my, my savior to call me Satan. That's, that's not good for me. And so, so I'm going to leave that one out. Here's another one I would, would leave out. When Jesus is, is arrested and he's being tried, we have a story about Peter, about what Peter is doing, what's happening to Peter while Jesus is at his trial. Matthew 26, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. And if I'm making up a religion, I'm going to leave that out. Peter doesn't look good there. He looks cowardly. He looks fearful. He is scared of a little servant girl, and so he betrays his Savior and runs away crying. Who in their right mind would include that story in a religion they're making up about themselves? That same foolishness, that same weakness, that same cowardice follows the disciples even after the resurrection. Look again at Luke where we left off. Luke 24. The women witness the resurrection. They come back to the apostles to tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead. And look at how the apostles respond to these women in verse 11. 
But these words appeared to them, the apostles, as nonsense, and they would not believe them. (laughs) The apostles were not only not expecting Jesus to rise, even though he told them that he would, but even when they're told that he's risen from the dead, they won't believe it. They refuse to believe it actually until they put their hands in his side. The apostles come across as doubting, weak, and cowardly. The women actually come across good. The apostles come across bad. If you're making up a religion, why would you cast yourself in such an unfavorable light? These are the guys who passed on Christianity to us. These are the guys who wrote the New Testament, and yet they willingly chose to include incredibly unflattering events about themselves. How do you explain that? It's actually interesting. Sometime you ought to to get your hands on some of the literature of the ancient world, some of the literature outside the Bible, and see how the ancients describe their heroes and their kings. It's all really flattering stuff. Their kings come across as almost gods, absolutely perfect, incredible. Every book of the Old Testament comes across with amazing heroes except the Bible. The one book of ancient literature where the heroes of the faith come across as foolish, weak, and cowardly. How do you explain that these men were willing to include such unflattering stories about themselves? The only reasonable explanation is this is what really happened. They're simply being accurate history tellers. They're just telling you accurately what exactly happened, even though it looks bad on them. So that's the third reason why I believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened because the apostles, as they record the events of Jesus' life, allow themselves to look so incredibly foolish and weak. Fourth reason, fourth proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, why I believe that it's true without a shadow of a doubt, is because the enemies of the apostles never, ever brought out the body. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are stirring up all of Jerusalem with this story, with this claim that Jesus the Messiah has risen from the dead. And and lots of people in Jerusalem are buying into it. Actually, 5,000 men saved in that chapter. 5,000 men convert to Christianity in Acts 4. Now, the religious leaders see all these people converting to Christianity, and they freak out. It's religious leaders. What they want above all else is to hold on to power. That's their goal in life. Jesus threatened their hold on power, so they crucified him. But now, just a few weeks later, his followers are claiming that he rose from the dead. They're losing their grip on power as all of Jerusalem is converting to this this faith of Christianity. And so in verse 14 in Acts, they ask themselves, what shall we do with these men? How can we silence them? How can we put an end to this this whole Christianity thing that is taking over Jerusalem? Well, if the apostles made up this whole Christianity thing, if they made up, if they fabricated this this whole resurrection thing, then I have a very, very easy answer for you. Go get the body. It's been about four or five weeks since he crucified Jesus. His body's still gonna be recognizable. You know where it is. It's a few hundred yards away in that tomb right over there. You can all see it. Go roll away the stone, get the body, and parade it through Jerusalem. Everyone in the town, everyone in Jerusalem had just seen Jesus during his trial, during his crucifixion. Just bring out the body and they'll all know he's a fraud. They'll all know that it's made up. It would be so easy to silence Christianity instantly. And yet they never do. They'll arrest Christians, they'll beat Christians, they'll kill Christians, but they won't do the one thing that would instantly silence Christianity, bring out the body. What do you do with that fact? 
Well, well, actually, even most non-Christian scholars will agree the only reasonable explanation is that the tomb was actually empty. That's the only way you can put it together because the Jewish authorities who hate Christianity never bring out the body. We can prove that from first and second century Jewish and Roman literature. The Romans who will end up hating Christianity, they never bring out the body. How do we explain that they never bring out the body which would have instantly ended this thing called Christianity which they all hated? Only reasonable explanation is the tomb was empty. There was no body to bring out. Even most non-Christian scholars would agree with us, yeah, the tomb had to be empty. That is the only possible explanation for the fact that the enemies of Christianity never brought out the body. But then they're quick to say, well, but the reason that the tomb was empty was because the disciples stole the body. That's what happened. The disciples went, rolled away the tomb, stole the body, and made up this whole Christianity thing to get power for themselves. It's a power play so that they can increase their reputation and draw a lot of followers. Well, that maybe sounds reasonable for just a moment until you reflect on the history, not just in the Bible, but in in secular history of the ancient world. And, And you realize that all of these men, all of these apostles, chose to suffer and die for their claim that they with their own eyes literally saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Let me give you some of the history around what the apostles suffered for this claim. For their claim that they saw Jesus resurrected. Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are flogged. That means to be whipped, to be beaten. Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, is beheaded by Herod because of his claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Acts 14, Paul is stoned within an inch of his life for his claim that he had seen the resurrected Jesus. Acts 16, Paul is beaten with rods. That happened three times in his life. After writing 2 Peter, Peter was crucified upside down for his claim that he actually saw the resurrected Jesus. After writing 2 Timothy, Paul was beheaded for his claim that he saw the resurrected Jesus. I just want you to think about it for a moment. If you made it all up, if you made up this whole resurrection story, then why would you willingly choose to suffer and die for a claim you know is false? Actually, 11 of the 12 disciples will suffer for their claim of seeing Jesus resurrected. They'll suffer with their lives. 11 of the 12 were martyred for their faith. One escaped, that's John, but he was tortured and imprisoned for most of his life for claiming to have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. All of these men paid dearly. Think about Paul for a moment. Before becoming a Christian, before seeing the resurrected Jesus on the Damascus road, Paul had everything. He had power, he had influence, he was wealthy, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was respected, He had absolutely nothing, humanly speaking, to gain by becoming Christian, by claiming that he had seen the resurrected Jesus. And yet, that's what he claims. He's willing to suffer the loss of everything, including his own head. Why would you do that if you were making it all up? That doesn't make sense. If I'm Peter, and I see these Roman soldiers coming to crucify me, and I made it all up, well, that is the moment when I throw my hands up and I say, guys, you got me. Fellas, let's, let's just stop for a moment and let me explain. There's been a little misunderstanding here. Uh, I, I made up this whole resurrection thing because I thought it would make me popular and clearly it hasn't. And so I'm sorry about that. Can we just forget all of this? But, but he doesn't. None of the apostles recant. They all hold fast to their claim that they personally saw the resurrected Jesus all the way to their torture and death. How do you explain that? 
How do you explain that historical fact? We can verify it, not just in the Bible, but in secular history, that all of them paid dearly for their claim. You put together really just those last two lines of proof, number four and five on the board. We can prove historical fact that the tomb was empty. There was no body. That's the only reason that the enemies of Christianity did not bring out the body and put an end to Christianity. In fact, number five, we can prove historically verifiable that all of the apostles suffered and died for their claim, that they personally had seen the resurrected Jesus. The only way to explain those two historically verifiable facts is that the resurrection really happened. That's the only way to put it together. That's the only way you can explain it. That is why I say to you, I I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus didn't just die. Three days later, he rolled the tomb away and he rolled the stone away and came forth, perfected, glorified, resurrected. Resurrection is absolutely true. We can prove it. That is the anchor that I hold to, that I cling to in life. Now, now let me get down to to practical matters. Why does this matter to you today? Why does it matter to you that we can prove historically that Jesus really did rise from the dead? What is the meaning of that, the the significance of that to you today? Well, during Jesus' life, he he made some pretty outrageous claims. If you read the teachings of Jesus, there's some pretty crazy stuff in there. One of the most outrageous claims he makes is in John 11, 24. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So think about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that, That not only will I rise from the dead, but I am the source of all life and all resurrection. So so if you die, if, if you die and are buried in the grave, if you have trusted in me, one day I will resurrect you. I will restore you to life. Jesus is claiming to be the author and creator and giver of all eternal life. That's an outrageous claim for a man to make. An outrageous claim that was proven true the moment he walked out of that tomb. That's why the resurrection matters to you. It is Jesus' proof to you that his promise is true. That's what the resurrection is all about. It's Jesus' proof of life, his, his proof of power. He's showing you just as I rose from the dead so I can resurrect you from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is his proof to you personally that he can fulfill his promise to give you eternal life, to resurrect you from the dead. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Resurrection of Jesus Christ is your proof that you will be resurrected just like him. That if you've trusted in Jesus, if you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, you will be pulled out of the grave, resurrected to perfect, glorious, eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth with God. That's what the resurrection means to you. And and when you think about that for a moment, when I reflect on the reality that it is a historically verifiable fact that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, guaranteeing my eventual resurrection, that I will be perfected, glorified, raised to live forever with God in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity, when I reflect on that truth, it puts everything else in my life in perspective. 
That's what the resurrection does for me. It puts everything else in perspective. There's a a great scholar named N.T. Wright. He's an Anglican bishop, one of the smartest men on planet, I think. Uh, He was riding in a cabbie in England, uh, and and the cabbie, the guy driving the cab, was uneducated, just a simple man, and they're talking about what N.T. Wright does as a bishop in the Anglican church, and and the cabbie said to him, ah, you you Church of England people, you're still having all that trouble about women bishops, aren't you? And and N.T. Wright sadly replied, yes, yes, we are. And then the cabbie said, the way I look at it is this. If God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, then all the rest is basically rock and roll. That, that is incredibly profound. Man, give that guy a doctorate because he's figured it out. That's right. If Jesus rose from the dead really, truly 2,000 years ago, guaranteeing your resurrection, then everything else in your life is basically rock and roll. It's small potatoes. It's nothing to worry about compared to that. As I've reflected on that reality, on the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to me this week, I've been really convicted. I've been forced to, to face a question that's, that's not comfortable to ask. I, I've had to ask myself, if, if I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that that guarantees my eventual resurrection, then, then why do I so often obsess over the things of this world? Why do I get so caught up in in money and cars and houses and clothes and entertainment and gadgets? All good stuff, but all so utterly insignificant compared to what I will have in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. When I've been looking at that that feature of my life that I so often become obsessed with the things of of this world, what what I see in myself, it's it's like the person who is on their way to a two-week, all-expense-paid vacation in Paris but they get furious with the flight attendant on the plane for not bringing them peanuts. Really? You're gonna freak out over not getting peanuts when you got two weeks in Paris ahead of you? Talk about a complete loss of perspective, but that's me. When I get obsessed with the things of this world, I'm getting obsessed with peanuts compared to the eternity that awaits me. Why do I obsess over the things of this world if I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Or second, way to look at this question. If I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then why do I so often fixate on the setbacks and disappointments of this life? This one's been really convicting to me. If I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, guaranteeing my resurrection, then why, when I have some setback in life, when I have something disappoint me, why do I get so depressed and frustrated and angry? I'm acting as if I believe that this life was all I get. And so that setback, it has cost me my one chance at happiness. No, this is not my best life. This is the short life before the really long life that lasts for all eternity. I don't need to fixate on the setbacks of this life. They are inconsequential compared to what I will enjoy for eternity. So uh, for me, practical example, I, I would really love to, to hike the Swiss Alps. They're really pretty. I've seen pictures of them. never been in them. They look really nice. I, I would love to go hike the Swiss Alps. It's not gonna happen, at least not anytime soon. I don't have the, the time or the money for that, but that's okay. That's okay that in this life I'm not going to get to to hike the Swiss Alps because uh, this is not my best life. And and because Jesus rose from the dead, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to have a perfected body to live forever on a new earth that's better than this earth. So whatever the new Swiss Alps are, I'm going to have all eternity in a perfected body with all the equipment I need. I can hike them forever. So why do I care so much about the fact that I don't get to hike them in this life? It doesn't matter. It's nothing compared to what I will enjoy for all eternity and the new heavens and the new earth an eternity that's guaranteed by the resurrection of my Lord and Savior. Third way that this question has been rattling in my head, third thing that's convicted me, if I 
If I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, guaranteeing resurrection for all who trust in him, then I must ask myself, why don't I tell more people about this good news? If Jesus really came out of that cave 2,000 years ago, resurrected, perfected, glorified, then you have the best news that has ever been told to the human race. The best news, news that every person on this planet needs because the one thing that you know about every person living on the planet is they fear death. They can't escape it. Death is coming for everyone. You have the one solution to the problem every human being faces. Death doesn't have to be the end for you if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. If you've trusted that Jesus, the Son of God, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then death is not the end of your story just as it wasn't the end of his story. You will be resurrected from the dead to live in glory and perfection in the new heavens and the new earth with him forever. It's the best news that has ever been told. So why don't we tell it more often? If people trust in Jesus, they will live forever. But how can they trust in Jesus if we don't tell them about him? We should be telling everyone about what Jesus has done. When you look at the end of the book of Matthew, end of the book of Luke, and beginning of the book of Acts, you see the same thing in all of them. Jesus, having just resurrected from the dead, gathers all of his apostles together and says, go, go, be my witnesses. Tell everyone I've conquered sin and death because that's the only news anyone will ever need to hear. If Jesus really rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, then you know why you're here. You know why you're on the planet. The fact of the resurrection gives you urgency and purpose in life. You are here for one reason, to be a witness of the fact that 2,000 years ago the Son of God conquered sin and death for us. The fact, the truth, the reality of the resurrection tells you why you are on this planet. It gives urgency and purpose to the rest of your life. What we celebrate on Easter is that 2,000 years ago, A man named Jesus did something that no one had ever done before and no one has ever done since. He conquered death. He rose from the grave, alive, perfected, glorious. He rose from the dead. And when we think about that reality, when we think about what we're celebrating today during Easter, what what we need to wrap our minds around is that this thing really happened, that the, the resurrection of Jesus, it's not just a fairy tale we tell our children because we're Christians. It's not just a metaphor for spiritual rebirth. It's not just a tradition that's been passed down to us by our forefathers. It's a fact, a historically verifiable fact, a fact that proves that the rest of the Bible is true, a fact that proves that that there is cause for having peace and joy and hope in life even when you suffer. So on my darkest days, when life feels like it's falling apart around me, this is the one thing I cling to. This is the knot that holds me up on the side of the mountain in life when nothing else will. That 2,000 years ago, he really rose from the dead. He really did it. It's not a story, it's true. He did it, that guarantees my resurrection. And because he rose and because he will resurrect me, all the rest of my life is just rock and roll. It's nothing big, nothing to worry about because he rose from the dead. That's everything. My entire life hangs on that one truth. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you today that 2,000 years ago, you conquered death. We praise you, not just that Jesus lived, not just that he died, but that he did the truly remarkable thing that he rolled back the stone and walked out of the tomb fully alive, perfected, glorified, resurrected, never to die again. 
We praise you that you have given us evidence so that we know that that happened. It is a fact that we can cling to when everything else is black in our lives, when everything is dark, when everything is painful, we can cling to that reality that 2,000 years ago our Savior rose from the dead and that that guarantees that we too will rise from the dead. That this life is just a, just a brief flash, it is just a vapor before our best life that will last for all eternity, resurrected in the new heavens and the new earth to enjoy eternity with you, our God and our Savior. We praise you and we thank you that that, that that gift of resurrection life is not something we earn from you. It's not something we work for. It's a free gift that you give to us. It's something that Jesus has earned for us. We pray for any person in this room who's, who's still trying to earn it, who's still trying to merit forgiveness and eternal life from you. I pray that they would see that it's a free gift, that they don't have to earn your love, that all they have to do is simply trust in Jesus, to believe that he is who he said he was, that he's done what he said he'd do. I pray, Father, that they would believe. And For all of us who have believed, we pray, Lord, this week that, that you would convict us of those, of those moments, of those thoughts, of those attitudes, of those, of those words, of those actions in our lives that are not consistent with belief in the resurrection of Jesus. I pray that you would convict us when we obsess over the things of this world. I pray that you, would, that you would convict us when we fixate on our setbacks, on our disappointments in life. I pray that you would convict us when we are reticent to share this incredibly good news with other people. I pray that you would open our eyes to see that if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that is everything. I pray, Lord, that you would grow us in faith, that you would grow us as people who not only believe, but who live as if Jesus really did triumph over death 2,000 years ago. I pray that that one truth would change everything about our lives. All for the glory, renown, and witness of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys this Easter Sunday.